It was the wrong decision, period. The lead starts right now. Young children trapped in a classroom with a killer. This decision made not to go in and rescue these children. They admitted bad judgment and communication. Did it cost lives? Plus, the kids who called for help, one little girl who called 911 at least five times, what she told dispatchers while locked inside that classroom with gunshots going off. And the trauma this entire ordeal is leaving on such young children, their parents, and a nation wishing to wipe away the pain. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with an absolutely devastating admission about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. For the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. That statement coming from the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Colonel Stephen McGraw, this afternoon. He says officers on the scene should have breached the classroom door immediately. Instead, Colonel McGraw says the commander on scene decided no more children were at risk. And they allowed the shooter to stay inside the classroom for more than an hour, despite the fact that kids inside the room were calling 911 and begging for police to help. What efforts were the officers making to try and break through either that door or another door to, to get inside that classroom? None at that time. Why? The the on-scene commander at the time believed that it had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. Sir, you have people who are alive, children who are calling 911 saying, please send the police. They are alive in that classroom. There are lives that are at risk. That admission likely to make it even harder for the families burying their loved ones and the children who survived and are now struggling with confusion, guilt, and fear. One of them, 11-year-old Maya Cerillo, in a conversation with CNN producer Nora Noose, recounted watching her teachers and classmates being killed. Their teacher got word that there was a shooter in the building, and she went out to lock the door. But Maya says the shooter was right there, and he shot out the window in the door. She describes it all happening so fast from there, her teacher backing into the classroom and the gunman following. She says the shooter looked one of her teachers in the eye, said good night, and then shot her. Another survivor, Jaden Perez, who told CNN's Adrian Broadus he could hear gunfire from where he was hiding with some of his classmates, and he learned shortly after that some of his friends were killed. Do you ever want to go back to school? I don't want to know what because I don't want anything to do with another shooting and me in the school. You scared it might happen again? Mm-hmm. And I know it might happen again. And the sad part of that is that there are no assurances we can give to that little boy that it will not happen again. CNN's Jason Carroll starts off our coverage today with new details on the investigation and the again shifting timeline of how the rampage unfolded. Disturbing new details on the shooter's actions. The exterior door suspected what the, where we knew the, the shooter entered, Ramos, was propped open by a teacher. 
Investigators clarifying the timeline. 1128, the suspect vehicle crashes into the ditch. 1131, suspect reaches last row of vehicles in the school parking lot. At 1133 is when the suspect entered the school. At 1133, the suspect begins shooting into room 111 or 112. It's not possible to determine from the video angle that we have at this point in time. We do know this, that he shot more than 100 rounds based on the audio evidence at that time. Officials said gunfire continued while agents were in the school hallway, but did not enter the room until a janitor provided keys. They breached the door using keys that they're able to get from the janitor because both doors were locked. Though both of the classrooms that he shot into were locked when officers arrived. They killed the suspect at that time. Officials admitting the incident commander made the call not to enter the classroom while the shooter was inside. There was plenty of officers to do whatever needed to be done, with one exception, is that the, the incident commander inside believed they needed more equipment and more officers to do a tactical breach at that point. It was a wrong decision, period. In that crucial time, survivors inside both classrooms made desperate calls to 911. Again at 1216, She's called back and said there was eight to nine students alive. She asked 911 to please send the police now. Alfred Garza says his daughter, Amory, may have been one of those students who tried to call 911. She was killed during the shooting. Now that Garza knows first responders made a tragic mistake and waiting to breach the door, it has triggered a range of emotions. Something's got to be done now. You know, where do we go? Where do we go from here? You know, you were wrong. What do we do now? You know, it's my question. What are we going to do now? The accountability you right. were talking about. Accountability, you know, somebody's got somebody's to be responsible. Those who survived and endured their wait for rescue now left to deal with the trauma. Mia um, got some blood and put it on herself, but she couldn't pretend that she was dead. And Pamela, now so many people here left with a lot of sobering questions, namely, could more children have been saved had these officers acted sooner? And for parents like Alfred Garza, who you just heard from, for him, it's a question of accountability. He's asking who should be held accountable and how they will be held accountable. Pamela? Just so agonizing for these parents. Jason Carroll in Uvalde, Texas, thank you. And police have been pressed for answers all day long, specifically on how did officers not go in to help the children trapped in that classroom with the killer for so long, for an hour. I want to bring in CNN Shimon Prokupes. So, Shimon, clearly there was a potentially deadly disconnect between 911 dispatch and the officers on the ground, or I don't know what, what to think of this, right? I mean, what explanation is there for this? Well, we, we don't have really an explanation for this. Uh, other police departments communicate regularly, uh, sadly, in these types of situations, in active shooters, uh, shooting situations, where 911 dispatchers are able to co communicate with police officers on the ground when they see something, when they hear something, when they're getting calls from people inside. So we're not getting that kind of explanation, uh, despite the director here taking you know, a fair number of questions. Those kind of details we still don't have, and they are important. Uh, specifically like that one 
piece of detail as to why the head of the school police here decided that this was going to be a barricaded situation with people's lives, children, teachers inside these class, inside this classroom whose lives were in danger, but decided that, this, that he wasn't going to treat this as an active, active shooter investigation. So those are the answers that we need, Pam, and that's why you know, uh, officials still need to continue to answer questions. I just can't get over Shimon, you know, all of these these little kids in the room calling 911 desperate for police to help and the fact that there were 19 police officers in the hallway as as the officials said today, I mean it's just devastating. You asked law enforcement about accountability going forward. What liability could these officers and decision makers have? Well, so there are certainly uh, state legislators and, and members of Congress who now want the FBI to investigate. Uh, they want an independent investigation. Certainly the, the chief of police here, uh, his name is Peter Arredondo. Uh, he spoke in the hours after the shooting, uh, giving a statement, uh, but we have not heard from him since. He wasn't at this press conference. I asked why he wasn't here. They didn't give any reason. I also asked the FBI if this is something, the reaction to this shooting, the tactics that were used here, if that was something they were going to investigate. They don't have jurisdiction right now. They are serving, as you know, Pam, in these situations, they serve uh, as an assistant. They get, offer assistance. They try to help with whatever resources the local needs. And that's what they do here. And that's what they're continuing to do. But clearly, the families are going to want this. And legislators and the community members are going to want some answers and people are calling for an independent investigation. Shimon Prokupes in Uvalde, Texas. Excellent reporting. Thank you, Shimon. Joining me now to discuss the CNN law enforcement analyst and former Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. So, Michael, the commander on the scene decided this was no longer an active shooter situation, despite the gunman being inside that room, kids still being alive and calling 911, and sounds of sporadic gunfire. Your reaction? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> as someone who is trained and actually trained other officers in the active shooter protocol, um, an active shooter remains an active shooter until the threat is neutralized. Uh, you know, police officers' primary responsibility is the preservation of life. And in this particular circumstance, uh, that required the taking of the suspect's life. Uh, so, I, I think like the um, uh, director said earlier today in the press conference, the, the wrong decision was made. And, and we don't know how many lives that cost, right? Because we don't know if some of the kids bled out or um, if some of the kids were, were killed later on during that hour. I mean, you know, there were nine 911 calls coming in. Walk us through what should have happened exactly? I mean, we have some of the details, right, that there were 19 officers in the hallway. The gunman was was in that classroom, the adjoined classroom. What should have happened? Uh, well, first, I think it's important to understand um, an active shooter is a threat classification. Um, the tactics that are utilized uh, to neutralize that threat um, have changed dramatically uh, since I first started as a police officer. Um, and now they require only a singular officer uh, on the scene uh, 
and their job is to pursue that threat, to identify that threat, and to neutralize the threat, uh, and not to stop until they've done so. Uh, even if they are receiving fire, um, I mean, unfortunately, it, it's uh, it's not a job for everyone, but that is the job. That's what it requires in that moment. Do you think the commander, this chief of police, should turn in his badge? Uh, I, I'd say, you know, emotions are high, and, and I certainly understand. I mean, I'm a parent myself. I have three children who are uh, elementary school age. It, it's important that we wait until the completion of the incident report um, and understand exactly what was going through the incident commander's mind at the time, what he or she uh, and the other officers were seeing and experiencing on the ground before we pass judgment. Um, but ultimately, I think if, if it, it's shown that, uh, that he was at fault, um, absolutely. I think termination is, uh, is a potential, uh, probably a reasonable outcome. All right. Well, I do want to ask you one more question before we let you go. At one point, the commander on the scene reportedly decided they needed more men and more gear to breach the classroom. But the Department of Public Safety now says there weren't any barricades. The door was just locked. There was a window on the door, apparently, too, from what from one of the uh, witness accounts. Surely police have the tools and the training, though, to break down a door that's locked instead of having to wait for a janitor to bring the key. Well, First and foremost, I would say that, uh, you know, resources available to uh, varying departments, including uh, the training necessary to perform under stress. Uh, I mean, that does vary from department to department. Uh, but what knowing what we know now, I don't need any special special training um, to get into a locked room where an individual is killing children. Uh, I'll figure out a way to accomplish that task. Period. Michael Fanone, thank you. Thank you. The missteps by police, the victims, so young in age. How do we process so much pain and what do we tell our own children? We're going to get some expert advice up next. Plus, Donald Trump will be speaking soon as the NRA convention meets in Texas. The tone we're already hearing as the event begins just a few hours' drive from Uvalde. We are back with our national lead. Funeral homes in Uvalde, Texas, have announced the first visitation and funeral plans for victims of Tuesday's horrific attack. CNN's Boris Sanchez reports now on the new details we're learning about those who didn't survive and the beautiful legacies they leave behind. A community in mourning. Three days after 21 innocent lives were taken, we're learning more about the loved ones this small town is grieving. Don't forget them, please. Do something about it, I beg you. Miranda Mathis was 11 years old. A friend of her mother's told the Washington Post Miranda was a fun, spunky, bright little girl. Ten-year-old Rogelio Torres, his aunt telling CNN affiliate KSAT, he was a, quote, very intelligent, hardworking, and helpful person. He'll be missed and never forgotten. Maite Rodriguez, also 10 years old. 
Her mother, Anna, says Maite dreamed of becoming a marine biologist and wanted to attend college at Texas A&M. In a touching Facebook tribute, Anna calls her daughter, quote, sweet, charismatic, loving, caring, loyal, free, ambitious, funny, silly, goal-driven, and her best friend. Other victims' names have also been confirmed. Layla Salazar, 11 years old, McKennelly Elrod, Alethea Ramirez, and Jace Carmelo Luevanos, all just 10 years old. And in a tragic twist, the husband of Irma Garcia, one of the murdered teachers, has also died. According to the Archdiocese of San Antonio, Joe Garcia suffered a heart attack after news of his wife's death and passed away on Thursday. The couple had been married more than 24 years and were high school sweethearts. They came to Mass every uh, Sunday. Father Eduardo Morales of Sacred Heart Church in Uvalde knew the family well. I told um, the community that uh, in my own family, when we've had a, a death, that it's the church and prayer that has gotten us uh, through all this. Not that it takes the pain away. The Garcias among a list of names, of lives cut too short. Eva Mireles, Ameri Garza, Uzziah Garcia, Javier Lopez, Jose Flores Jr., Lexi Rubio, Annabel Guadalupe Rodriguez, Jacqueline Casares, Tess Mata, Nevea Bravo, Ellie Garcia, Jayla Silguero, Elijah Torres, names that will forever be etched in the memories of those touched and affected by this horrible tragedy. Jose Flores, show him to the state, the nation, show him to the world. When he died, I died hard with him. And Pam, as you've noted, we've confirmed that multiple funerals have now been scheduled for victims in the coming weeks. Uh, we've also learned that two funeral homes here locally have decided to cover the cost of their services to make this heart-wrenching process for these families a little bit easier. Pam. Laura Sanchez in Uvalde, Texas, thank you. And new images from the Uvalde Leader newspaper show images in the immediate aftermath of Tuesday's shooting and chilling firsthand accounts from children who survived are starting to emerge. Children like 11-year-old Mia Cerillo, or Maya Cerillo, who spoke exclusively to a female CNN producer off-camera, traumatized after watching the gunman shoot her teacher and classmates. Maya smeared the blood of a dead classmate all over herself and then played dead. Now, even routine noises trigger pain. Your alarm went off accidentally on your cell phone while you were talking to her. What happened? I felt so bad. I mean, it, was, it just was an accident, and she just kind of, she clearly was uh, kind of triggered by that. Um, and her mom said, you know, that's been happening a lot. They, they were at a car wash yesterday and went to vacuum out the car, and she, it, it completely set her off. Um, She's not sleeping right now. Um, she's, you know, the whole interview, she brought a blanket with her, and the whole interview she just was, like, covering herself in this blanket, and it was hot. But it felt like she just was trying to keep herself covered. I want to bring in Sari Kaufman, a survivor of the Parkland Massacre. She is a volunteer with Students Demand Action. Hi, Sari. I'm sure this is so tough for you in many ways. Of course. We, we want to hear about... Um, how this makes you feel after everything you went through and then hearing what this child experienced. Yeah, it's just devastating. It's hard not to cry, especially 
listening to that experience. And after four years um, since Parkland and then this still happening, and for me to see the videos of police running into the school, it just brings back a lot of memories and it's re-traumatizing. Um, and it's just, it's already too late to act, but, but this time we, we really need to do something before it happens again. I think we can all agree with that. We, we never want to see this again. What were those early days like for you after the shooting at your school? Yeah, it was really difficult to process. Honestly, I was confused. I was heartbroken. I remember trying to figure out which friend of mine passed away, uh, which teacher was okay. And those thoughts as a 15-year-old, no one should have to go through. Um, And especially these elementary students, what they're going through is unimaginable. Um, Sadly, I have some insight. um, And it's just incredibly disappointing. Uh, It's really difficult after going through a shooting. No one ever should go through that, and especially at school where we're supposed to be learning. It's just their innocence was stripped away, and, and I know how they feel, and, and I just, I'm heartbroken for them. What is your advice to them? I think my advice is, you know, since, since they're young, to try to process it now. I've learned that if you wait and then try to figure out, you know, what, what just happened at my school, how did I lose my friends, my classmates, and teachers, it gets harder and harder after each year goes by. So, you know, hopefully those students will have the help um, and be able to try to connect their emotions to what just happened. Um, because like I said, you know, as more and more youth are going through this, it's it, it's just, there's no words. Um, yeah. And especially as someone who, who's gone through it. And, you know, hopefully their, their families are there for them. Families across the country are also facing some very tough conversations about what happened in Uvalde. Would you recommend parents initiate those talks or wait for the child to come to them with questions? Of course, in some cases, they don't have that choice because the kids learn about it at school or from their friends. But what would you advise? Yeah, I think it just depends on the child and on the parent. Um, you know, if, if the student is willing to talk about it, I think it's important. But if they need time, you know that they need time. And, and each person I learned, especially at such a big school like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, you know, different people process it different ways. Uh, so it really just depends on the student. And, you know, just even having this conversation, oh, how should we tell students to process a shooting? Like that, that just should not be a conversation. And it's really frustrating that I need to give advice on, oh, you know, what do you do if you went to school and, and your friends got shot and killed? Like, it, it's just extremely frustrating and angering to, to have to answer these questions. This should just not be happening. This should not be happening. Couldn't agree with you more. Sorry, Kaufman. Thank you for your insights, unfortunately, that you have from your own experience in a mass shooting at a school. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the NRA convention gets underway in Texas amid protests and questions of bad timing. More politicians are pulling out of the event, but not all of them. We're going to take you there up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.